So this evening we're going to look at um, Isaiah 42. I'll read 1 to 9, though I'm really not going to, only going to focus on the first four verses. And uh, think about the Lord's chosen servant. Uh, before we read, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for, uh, again, that we have the chance to, to look at your word and open our ears and our eyes and soften our hearts to receive all you'd say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirits to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So we're not starting a new series for a couple of weeks. Um, I'll be away next week. So I'd always um, intended to just preach a one-off uh, sermon today. Um, it affords me the rare privilege of being able to choose somewhere from wherever I like. Uh, unfortunately, it's kind of like going into a large supermarket with so many options. And uh, you end up being paralyzed because of the vastness of the choice in front of you. Um, however, a former m- mentor of mine once urged me to preach what I like as long as I preach about Jesus. That's a good uh, kind of orientating statement to have in your mind all the time. Preach what you like as long as you tell people about Jesus. Uh, so, so what better thing to do this evening than take a look at the Lord Jesus Christ himself and uh, I and we're going to do that from Isaiah 42 and um, so I trust that that's what we're all about as a church Uh, we're about preaching and proclaiming Jesus Christ looking at Jesus Christ Um, and that's to expound and to explain him as we find him in the holy uh, pages of holy scripture is our goal and uh, so as, as Paul speaks about his own ministry uh, in the New Testament, he talks about uh, you know, placarding Jesus Christ, holding up in a, a placard, if you like, telling people about Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're about, I hope. 
as a church. And if ever we drift from that, you, I'm sure you'll let me know. Uh, and we drift from the habit of that. And so our job is to declare to all who will listen uh, as best we can who he is and all that he's done for his people. Um, and some passages brim over with uh, clarity and fullness to that end. And these verses in Isaiah 42 are one of those passages. And so, of course, Isaiah was a, a prophet of the Old Testament who ministered in Jerusalem uh, between 740 BC, the year that King Uzziah died, as you read in chapter 1, um, or rather chapter 6. Uh, and he possibly ministered up to 687 BC when King Hezekiah died. And in this second part of the book of Isaiah, from 40 through to 66, Isaiah is concerned about the, uh, the future salvation of, of God's people, the future redemption of God's people. And as ever, the prophetic writings always have two horizons in view. Um, you know, it's kind of like dealing with prophecy is kind of like walking in the hills in Scotland. You, you think you're getting to the top of the hill and you get to the top and then you discover there's more behind it and uh, there's more climbing to be done. Um, and it's kind of like that with, uh, with prophecy. So the two, two horizons are that in the near future for uh, Isaiah and for Jerusalem is, is that Babylon is coming and will soon become the dominant power uh, which will take Jerusalem into exile but the, the second horizon is that much greater salvation is, uh, is to come uh, and this is a time where uh, a much greater power than even Babylon could be, will be destroyed the power of the devil the power of Satan the power of sin and it leads to the people being redeemed and brought to the new heavens and the new earth. And Isaiah 65 and 66 speak about the new heavens and the new earth. And so that great horizon is always, is always there. And the central figure of who is going to bring in that great eschatological redemption. Whom the Lord, Yahweh, is going through his the Lord is going to bring that salvation is the servant of the Lord who is spoken of here in Isaiah 42 and so just two questions, I hope we'll be quicker than we were this morning two questions to, uh, to deal with this evening, who is the servant and what's he like who's the servant and what's he like so who's the servant? And the, the revelation begins uh, from God through Isaiah. And it begins with, behold, take a look. Pay attention. Look at what I'm showing you. My servant. Listen to what I'm going to tell you about him. Uh, and it's interesting because if you just jump back to the previous chapter... In chapter 41, uh, verse 29, um, the verse before, he's also saying, behold. But he's saying behold in a different way, about a different thing. 
behold, they are all a delusion. What, what is this? All the idols that people worship, they're all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. And he's saying, look at this lot. They're useless. They're no good. But now instead, behold, my servant. My servant. Pay attention to him. And so immediately we see this contrast. That the servant is not like any other God. Not like any other religious system. Not like any other philosophical system. Not like any other king or power. He is utterly unique in history. This servant of the Lord. And also notice that you know, we, have, we have the advantage of knowing what Matthew says about him. Because he quotes these verses in Matthew ch- chapter 12. And Matthew applies this to Jesus Christ. And we know it's about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have this advantage. He's speaking about the Jesus is going to come in 700 years time. And so these verses tell us, I think they tell us six things about the servant. We're still in the main heading, who's the servant? We've got six things to say about, about the servant. First of all, he is described as a servant. Or another way of translating it, he is a slave. A slave to the Lord. And a slave or a servant only does the bidding of his master. He does that and that only. And the servant Jesus comes with one goal in view. To do everything that his father has told him to do. And this is what Jesus said himself. When he was going, speaking to his disciples and to the Jews around him. So John 4.34 My food is to do the will of him who sent, who sent me. And to accomplish his work. Or John 6.38 For I have come down from heaven. Not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me. Those are, in themselves are staggering verses. I have come down from heaven. So this is a pre-existent divine figure. Jesus Christ, the utterly unique servant of the Lord, come as a man. And this is what the, the apostolic uh, writers uh, said of Jesus. And quoting from Psalm 40, uh, the, the writer of the Hebrews says, Hebrews 10, 5 to 7, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, I have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, this is the servant speaking with the body. He says, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. It is all written that the servant would come and do exactly as his father had decided. And here we have Jesus Christ, therefore, coming from heaven to fulfill his messianic mission uh, to, uh, given to him by his Father, to take to himself a body, that pre-existent God, 
to take to himself a body, to come as a man, and for that body to be the sacrificial offering for sins, the sins of his people. And so Hebrews 4.10, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It is in that offering of the, the servant, of his body, that he is able to procure for us a sanctification, a making holy a people for himself through Jesus Christ. Friends, Jesus Christ is unique. There's nobody like him. No other religion is like, is like this, that has a saviour like Jesus Christ. He is the unique and true servant of the Lord. There is only one. And it's him. And he doesn't, doesn't he deserve, therefore, our awe and our reverence as we bow down before him. This servant of the Lord. That's number one. Second thing is that this servant was upheld by the Lord. You see this at the end of, verse, at the, end of the first line. Behold my servant whom I uphold. And it speaks of that essential weakness of the human body that the servant took to himself that he was subject to ordinary human needs that he had to eat and drink and sleep he became dependent on his environment dependent on people around him to bring him food and to help him and so there are times when he felt tired and weak and hungry and thirsty and so on and he had to endure all the temptations that we had to face as a, as a man in a human body with a human nature. He had to endure all the temptations just like, like us. And in order for him to endure through that, he needed the help of his father. That his father would uphold him and sustain him. Why do you think Jesus spent so much time in prayer it's often a puzzle to Christians. If Jesus Christ is God himself, why does he need to pray to his Father? He's God, doesn't he know what he needs? Well, he's a man, you see. Does not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but makes himself nothing. And so he makes himself utterly dependent upon his Father. And so he needs to pray for the things he needs. So the, the Father helps him and sustains him. Those prayers were answered and he endured to the end, even to death and a cross. Here's the third thing. He was chosen. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen. The chosen one. This is a description of the Lord Jesus Christ. The chosen one. The elect servant. Peter describes him as chosen and precious in 1 Peter 2.4. He is the elect one and that's absolutely vital for every single Christian. That we know that Jesus, our Jesus, is the elect one. Paul describes Christians as chosen ones. But we are not chosen in ourselves, are we? We are chosen in Jesus Christ. That's what Ephesians 1.4 says. We are chosen in Christ, in the elect one. So because he is elect, we are elect. We are hidden in him. We are bonded to him through faith. Without him being chosen, no one can be chosen. No one can be saved. Without him, no one can be saved. 
And the fourth thing about him. He's the one in whom the soul of the Lord delights. Now, that's a strange thing to say of God, isn't it? Does God have a soul like we do? Well, there's a translational issue. Uh, The nephesh of God. What does that mean for God? Because God doesn't have a soul like we have a soul. He doesn't have a body like we have a body. What does nephesh mean in that context? It means out of the depth of his whole being. His whole divine being. He delights in his son. Everything about him delights in his son. Especially as he carries out his mission. You see, God is spirit. He doesn't have a body or soul like we do. So when you read about God having a soul, that's really what it means. It means his whole being now, all of his allness, delights in the son, in the servant. And we get a marvelous insight into this delight that the father has for his son. Remember when Jesus is baptized in in Matthew chapter 3, And the heavens are opened and the voice says from heaven, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. My beloved son. It's quoting from here. My beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And all through his ministry, Jesus walked under the smile of his father. My beloved son is serving me. And even as he suffered on the cross, sacrificing his body for the sins of others, even in those moments when Jesus went to Jesus, his father seemed to have abandoned him. And we express that sometimes in a in a hymn we sing, you know, the father turned his face away. Yet there is a it's certainly true that in that moment there's never more delight in the in the soul of the father than when he sees his son spending himself giving himself those of us who are parents and have children You will have felt a sense of pride when your child does something amazing, appropriate for their age, you know. And it, it doesn't have to be something fantastic. It could be just a, you know, a, a drawing. Some of you give me drawings at the end of the service, and it's wonderful. And it brings delight. And you, as, you're, as parents, you know that. How much delight you get from your children as they grow up and they grow in their skills and their abilities and they do things and they do more things, more good things. And your parents, as parents, you do a lot, you love it. And you miss it when they leave the house. You know. But if that's true of you, how much more true is it of God looking upon his son, Jesus Christ? Magnify that feeling infinitely and you get a sense of how much the Father in heaven delights in his Son. And then the fifth thing. He has laid his Spirit on him. I have put my Spirit upon him. 
And again, as baptism, uh, this is demonstrated visibly as the Spirit came down like a dove and came upon the Son as he was, uh, after he was baptized. And the Holy Spirit, you see, equips the Son for the work that he's going to be doing uh, as he does the will of his Father. And a moment's reflection will help you realize that if it's true that the Son of God took upon himself human flesh and did not consider equality of God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, made himself utterly dependent on the powers of heaven from above, then of course he needs the Holy Spirit in his life for him to continue in that work. So he becomes like nothing, just like us. How can he do all that he needs to do if he does not get that divine help from the Holy Spirit? How can he bring glory to God? He does so through the Holy Spirit, just like we do. We live in the power of the Holy Spirit. We live according to the power of the Holy Spirit. So did Jesus, to be just like us, so that he could save us. And then the last thing is, end of verse 1, he will bring forth justice to the nations. This uh, Son of God would do something that is so uniquely marvelous that would benefit people of all nations across the earth. Indeed, this is what the gospel message is all about. This is the gospel message that was declared to Adam, uh, Abraham rather, that um, a blessing would come to the nations through him, through his seed. And it's repeated in David and the prophets and and others. And it's expressed to the apostles to go into all the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And at the core of that gospel message is the proclamation of Christ himself. To placard Jesus Christ to the world. To tell people about him, his work, how he satisfies divine justice. And he calls men and women to to come to him and believe in him. So that hell-deserving sinners could go free and be forgiven of their sins. All of that, just in these two verses, that one verse should drive us to, to want to find out more about this king, this servant, this Jesus. And I, I told you this so many times, but I've, you know, I've met lots of people in Solihull who have opinions about Jesus. And the more I meet, the more, the more I realize that often they just don't have a clue. And I've, it's hard not to feel sorry for people who don't understand who Jesus is. They think of Jesus as just another religious guru who walks around uh, offering wise thoughts about things and saying nice things. There's so much more to Jesus Christ. The man, who, the God who came from heaven itself and becoming nothing like a slave and uniquely beloved of his father who gave him his spirit so that he could carry out his messianic mission. And this ought to make us worship him. To worship Father, Son and Holy Spirit in this glorious work that he has done. Have you noticed how Trinitarian this is by the way? Same passing. The Father, the servant, who anointed with the Holy Spirit. Who is this servant? Well, that's what we looked at. 
What's he like? Secondly, what's he like? We'll be quicker with this. And just look at verses 2 and 3. Because here's a man who is marked by lowliness, humility, meekness, compassion. Notice that Jesus is not a loud mouth. There are some people who get into positions of power and authority and become loudmouths. They like to make a big noise and effectively saying, just look at me all the time. Just look at me. Look at me. Not Jesus. Jesus is not domineering. He is not aggressive. He's not offensive. Except the rebellious. Jesus says to people, Matthew eleven twenty nine, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is our Jesus. You will find rest for your souls. And of course, you know, people like me, ministers, elders, and anyone of influence in church can learn a great deal of how to pastor, how to lead a church by looking at Jesus and seeing how he was gentle and meek and lowly. Gentleness is always better than raw power. And that's why he says in verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. These are great pastoral words for us today. There are a great many things that could bruise us or snuff us out. Not least the effects of sin in our lives. We, many of us, we live with sins in our lives. And some of us, we live with persistent sins in our lives. And these, should, these weigh upon us, and maybe they should weigh upon us. And if you're not a Christian this evening, you ought to feel the weight of the burden of your sin upon your shoulders until you come to Jesus Christ and you find that he takes that burden away from you. And if you are a Christian and you sin again and you don't confess it, I guess it ought to burden you. It's it's actually a, a way of God's exercising his grace towards you to lead you to repentance. But when Jesus sees such a bruised reed... He does not break it off as a lost cause. Rather, he comes to support it and to help. When he sees a wick that is about to uh, to die out, and all that there is might be smoke, he doesn't take his thumb and forefinger and just go, that's enough. I've had enough of you. No, he begins to blow. begins to fan it into flame. And encourage so that the flame comes back. It doesn't snuff it out. Look at verse 4. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he's established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. He will not faint or grow discouraged. And those words are the same words, uh, are the same words, faint and discouraged. And are the same words used for a faintly burning wick or a bruised reed. But Jesus says, but I'm not going to be like that. 
I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to grow faint and grow discouraged. So verse 4 is saying something wonderful. That though you may be bruised and discouraged by your sin and the weight of your problems in life. Though you and I may be growing up faint to the point of maybe being willing to give up and throw the towel in as it were. He never will with you. He endures with you when it seems that you are not able to. And friends, this is the kind of saviour that we need. If someone is here today who is not a Christian and you realise that it is simply impossible for you to save yourself, that you are too broken and too damaged and you you need Jesus to support you and give you the flame of eternal life, he alone can do it. And if so, will you not have him? And for those of us who are Christians, maybe maybe your understanding of Jesus is so poor that you have not seen, uh, you've not seen the loving nature of our Lord Jesus Christ before. Perhaps you see him as an ogre who looks down his nose at you, waiting for you to get your act together. Perhaps you see him as about to give up on you as he wallows in his own disappointment at you. That's how you think about it. But it's not how he thinks. You need to see him as continually humble, continually lowly, even in heaven, at the right hand of God, meek and compassionate, who is always ready to support you when you wilt, who wants to fan you into flame. When the fire of your heart seems like it's going to be snuffed out. Jesus wants to help you. And is that not a wonderful servant to have? Isn't he just the one that we need? In all his glorious uniqueness. He is just the servant we need. And all his achievement for us is so glorious and wonderful. Are you not encouraged to come to him? Is he not a saviour we can love and trust and adore? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son. And Lord, we do indeed adore him. Thank you for his love and his mercy and his grace. We thank you that he is not he's a king but not like any other king. He has all power and authority, yet he doesn't use it like those with power and authority. But he uses it for the benefits and joy of his people. Lord, come into our lives. May we know this Jesus more and more and rest in him. In his name we pray. Amen.